Black Warriors, Tonsei, Sego, Ani Buju, Luizi Pam Palmer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, practices, laws, and governing structures. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And sometimes that means we all have to come together to defend our peoples who are defending their rights. Right now, the Assembly of Nova Scotia Chiefs have declared a state of emergency in Mi'kma'ki on mainland Nova Scotia due to racist violence towards our Mi'kmaq fishers by non-native fishermen. To help us understand more about the context of this state of emergency and what's happening on the ground is Cheryl Maloney. I've known Cheryl for a long time. I'm a huge admirer of her. I'm so proud to be in the same Mi'kmaq nation as her. She is um, from Sabaganagadi, formerly known as Indian Brook First Nation. She's well known amongst grassroots warriors, not just in Mi'kma'ki, but all over the country. She helped lead the resistance against Alton gas poisoning our rivers. She has decades of advocacy work. She used to be the former president of Nova Scotia Native Women, and she you can always be found somewhere helping us work on all of these issues, especially at the grassroots level um, and at the community level with women and children and also with our leaders. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. Oh, I got tired from that panel. I'm like, who is she talking about? <laughs> Thank you for having me. Well, it's it's an honor, Cheryl. Because, like I said, I've just I've known you so long. I follow all of your work. I, you know, often call you for advice. And this is a really important issue. And I thought of if there's any person who can explain to people what's happening on the ground and why we're in a state of emergency, it would be you. But first, before we do that, maybe you'd like to introduce yourself the way you like to. Well, you know. Um... I really have nothing else to say after that, that introduction. I'm even blushing and a little humbled over here. So um, the only thing I would add is that um, my father, and this is the key context for um, looking at where we are now and why are we here 21 years after Marshall. And um, our community has a long history of resistance. And growing up, the daughter of the chief, Rich Maloney, we, I, I followed him and I remember him coming home one day. I was probably 18, 19 at the time. And it was, he was celebrating this victory on um, the R versus Simon decision at the Supreme Court of Canada. At that time, I didn't understand the, the impact or the importance, just a, a young woman. Um, but the R versus Simon decision was one of the first um, cases decided at the Supreme Court of Canada after the Constitution um, was passed in this country. And so it was key in recognizing our treaty rights to hunt and fish off reserve without a provincial license. So that was sort of the building block for the Marshall decision, which came later. So I guess me growing up in a family and, and a community that was always fighting for treaty rights, never forgot the treaty rights. Um, it's a big part of who I am and a big part of who my children are. So I've been watching all the live footage and instead of my dad being on the front lines or me being on the front lines, I have two of my sons that are there um, playing key critical roles on, on the um, resistance work, but it's not resistance as much it is, as it is um, assertion mm -hmm. we are taking back our power in so many different ways so i'm really excited to share with what we've been doing because a lot of the work is behind the scenes in preparation of the launch of the fishery and in preparation of a new governance structure a way of doing things in this country and moving away from the uh the government-led negotiation tables that that laid the agenda and the mandate for us so it's almost like, um, you know, we chase after federal dollars and, and I really hate working with organizations where you're always chasing money because the money is a, a government, you know, driven, um, proposal driven um, priority of the federal mm -hmm. government. So a lot of the times we're chasing 
their priorities and use in their language. And that's the same with the negotiation tables. They, they are um, centered around the mandate and the direction the federal government wants us to go. So we've actually um, moved quite a bit away from that and, and are setting our own agenda. Uh, and in saying that, we've been on our own for about five years now, away from any negotiation tables and with no funding. Um, so we're, we're leading with the capacity of community and not federal or provincial government um, in talking about these things. And so when I'm, I say I'm excited to talk about this is because we've been working behind the scenes in preparation for what you see now. Um, and it looks like there might be some random or we're out there fishing and, and there's wars, uh, but we're ready. My community is ready and we've done a lot of work to get to this point. Well, I think that's the part that a lot of people don't know. So for anyone who's just following this issue right now, um, can you explain a little bit about what started this violent racist reaction by these non-native fishermen that are trying to stop you from fishing, trying to, you know, cut your uh, lobster traps, trying to intimidate people on the ground, chasing them with boats, shooting flares at Mi'kmaq fishers? I mean, what on earth brought that forth? Well, you know, um, bad behavior that's rewarded leads to more bad behavior. Mm. I want to go back to the Marshall decision, 1999, when, and the Marshall decision builds on the Mi'kmaq treaties and what I referred to earlier was the Simon decision. The Simon decision was 1986. And it recognized the Mi'kmaq treaties as being as good today as the day it was signed. And that was key because all the lower courts up to that, up to that decision referred to us as savages, incapable of entering into agreements. Uh, just, you know, um, the language was horrendous. Mm -hmm. So when Simon came and the judges, the treaties are as good today as the day they were signed, we're like, Wow, that's exciting. The treaties also allowed for trade, truck houses for trade. Uh, so the next case, the next big case to test the Mi'kmaq treaties ended up being um, Donald Marshall Jr. And Donald Marshall Jr., uh, it wasn't like he went out to be this big test case, but he had been wrongfully convicted of murder and had been, um, had been freed and um, not pardoned, but found to be not guilty. And there was a big inquiry into his wrongful conviction. And Junior is a very quiet man out fishing and selling his eels, making a living, and nobody really bothered him um, until he got arrested by DFO. And the judge, the, the judge, the courts, the chiefs, um, thought this is a good case to push our treaty that next step. How can you stop the Mi'kmaq from um, fishing? Especially a, a, a young Mi'kmaq man that went through so much in his life, now coming out of jail, trying to find a way and make a living and, and fishing off our lands and resources. So, um, so he was fined and convicted and went to the Supreme Court of Canada and the Supreme Court of Canada in 1999, uh, Marshall decision said no, the Mi'kmaq have a right to hunt, fish, trade, and uh, hunt, fish, and trade. And there was um, a few treaties, the Covenant Chain of Mi'kmaq treaties that were used in the Simon decision and the Marshall decision. And so Donald Marshall Jr. Um, was and is the Marshall decision. That happened in 1999. And I, I remember standing and I took my children out of um, school. We knew the decision was coming that day and there was no internet and there was no social media or anything. We just got a uh, message, a call probably to the, the band office, to my dad and the other chiefs that the decision was coming down. So I took my kids, they were eight and 10 at the time. And we, um, you know, they got off school. They didn't know, they were just standing in room and the decision came down and it was like, wow, we won. The courts recognized the Mi'kmaq right to hunt, fish, and trade. 
And we're like, wow. I even thought, I remember standing here saying, oh, what do we do now? We spend our whole life, <laughs> generation from generation, fighting for these rights. And all of a sudden, the courts at the highest level in this country say, sure, you, you, you won. And as soon as I thought, now what are we going to do with our lives? What's our life purpose now? You know, everything we fought for came down in that day and from the Supreme Court of Canada. And it was just an, a, a wonderful feeling, a historical time in our world. And then the racism started and our boys started fishing and commercial fishermen came out the racism in every town and nook and cranny in this Atlantic Canada these fishing villages um they were out fighting us on the water just like you're seeing today so that bad behavior in 1999 um led to a weird clarification at the Supreme Court of Canada and it, it's it's never been challenged but it should have been challenged and it's called the Marshall II decision it should have been challenged because the Supreme Court of Canada, due to public pressure and violence from non-native um, commercial fishing industries, um, I, I guess bullied them into making a clarification. And the clarification um, clarified that the minister can make regulations regarding rights. And so then the minister um, mistook that legal um, clarification and thought she is the ultimate, or he is the authority on, on fishing rights. But that Marshall two from the Supreme Court of Canada and the Marshall one didn't say that they, we had to regulate, they had to regulate us. There's test. And one of them, and, and the Mi'kmaq people, are allowed to, to choose their seasons and the method of, of celebrating and enjoying their rights. So we can pick which species, we can pick which time of year, and the minister can, if there's a conservation or public interest concern, can come and regulate us, but not unfettered. She would have to, one, it has to be in, in the name of conservation or public interest. So, you know, there was some room for the minister to, to play a role. And it's, so they're saying it's not um, a free-for-all and, and the Mi'kmaq can't do just anything and, and exploit the resources. So what happened then in 2000, 99-2000, was the pressure by non-native fishermen and, and act in the way they're acting now, ramming boats, um, cutting traps, fighting on the wharfs, on the water with Mi'kmaq people. Really, um, it's like a mob. The, the fishing industry in Atlantic Canada is, is run by a mob and, and they feel that there's no laws that apply to them. So that same behavior that they did when we won the Marshall decision came out of the woodwork when we announced we're gonna self-regulate our, our fishery. And I want to just go back. The reason why we had to self-regulate our fishery is because every minister of fisheries from 1999 to 2020 has never, ever sat down to consult with the Mi'kmaq, which is required under the Supreme Court of Canada. They have to consult with us, which means they have to say, okay, this is, they have to assess what our rights are, the strength of our claim. They have to look at what the impacts of any infringements that they're proposing would be on our claim. They have to listen to how we want to exercise our right and, and, and when and where. So our season, so the, that's our self-government management plan. The minister has to look at that and then she can consult with us and say, well, I don't agree with this. So I'm gonna infringe on your right. And I'm gonna say, no, you can't start August 1st. Maybe we'll let you start September 1st in the name of conservation. And what you hear now is all the non-native fishermen. After 21 years, we launched on the anniversary of the Donald Marshall decision, saying conservation, um, having a, a big tantrum. And the same bad behavior that they did 21 years ago, where they got results, they're doing again today. 
But what we were dealing with then is so much different now. And the reason it's so much different now is we've had 21 years um, of being denied. The ministers never came and sat with us. They would impose a deal on us and say, hey, this is what we're proposing for the Mi'kmaq fish and it will give you millions of dollars, boats and gear, taxpayers paid for in order for you to give up your rights and fish under our plan. That's what they offered us in 2000. My plebiscite moves 23 million. So they're doing it again now under their rights um, proposal that they're, they're putting forth to the chiefs now and the communities. Same thing, we'll give you millions of dollars, lots of um, incentives to give up on your rights. And the chiefs in all, I think most of the chiefs are saying, no, that doesn't work. But for our community, it definitely doesn't work. For my community, we turned down $23 million in 2000, and why would we accept anything now? And so the other things that our community's been doing um, that I'm proud of is we built up a strong fleet of fishermen. Uh, there's some really good captains. A lot of our community members have marine emergency duty training, myself included. I bought a couple boats in my time trying to, to fish and assert the right to fish. We have doctors, lawyers, researchers, scientists, communications people. And when we started working on this plan, we had no federally funded dollars, but we had a lot of capacity. And, and what we did is a community and a consultation team is reach out to our community experts and our, our allies. And, and um, we had PhDs in environmental science and we have the most amazing team of base, basic community capacity from our members and friends of our friends. And we brought in all the experts and, and we discussed every type of angle, every um, everything we needed to do before we go out on our own. So one of the things we did is we need our own management plan. We need our own enforcement fleet. We need to look at our own buy-in system, uh, buy-in and transfer, because they're making it legal for us to, to, for anyone in the province to buy from us. The province says it's illegal to buy Mi'kmaq illegal fish. <laughs> So that's one of the challenges right now, we need markets. But prior to that, we also built in a strong governance structure. This is key for any communities or anybody that wants to, to really assert self-governance. Our community um, adopted and ratified within our community a governance structure that requires the consent of their people if any negotiations or consultations affect rights um, and the, the higher the um, impact of, of the, to the rights, the stronger duty we have to our members. So, so um, we developed that, we sent that to the community, we worked on that for a number of years. And so once that was ratified and part of the community governance structure, then we took that step of asserting self-governance beyond the Indian Act. And that's key here. Our council and our community are very clear that their mandate in the, under the Indian Act is limited. And anything they do on rights and beyond that has to go to the people. And it's, it's the same as um, we talk about free prior informed consent at the United Nations. We, as Mi'kmaq societies and a lot of indigenous societies are already um, consent-based decision-making societies, communities, governance structures. So we built in our indigenous Mi'kmaq laws into our governance models. And, and that was the foundation of our assertions of rights. So if they deny us, we have a very, very strong governance structure 
facts a regulated fishery we have our own enforcement team conservation is paramount and it's a strong case if we have to go back to the supreme court of canada we're going to win we are going to win the, the minister has never offered a conversation they just threw money at us and it's funny when people are saying you're living off the taxpayers dollars well, us going out on those little boats that our members are buying for ten, eight to twelve thousand dollar little boats, their own hard-earned money, we're not taking taxpayers' dollars. They should be happy. We're not fishing with million-dollar boats in the season in the middle of winter with four hundred traps or three hundred seventy-five traps. What we're doing is fishing small little boats in the season where the Mi'kmaq would fish. We weren't, we weren't foolish. We knew our water, we knew our land, we knew our, we knew our resources. The Mi'kmaq would never fish in December and January, far out offshore when the lobsters come in, in the spring and the fall closer to shore. Why would we do that? It makes no sense. So the, the non-native fishermen want us to fish in their season, in the million dollar boats, but that's gonna cost taxpayers. That's, that's not um, how we wanna do it. And I keep remembering my dad when he was alive, and that's why I said it's important. Chief Rich Maloney is my father, or was my father. He said, I want our people to build up, save money, buy a boat, you know, go to the bank and make a small loan based on our treaty rights and go out and fish and make a livelihood. We don't want the, the handouts or the, the bribes or the buyouts that's being offered. And it's a very modest but honest way for our members to go out. And I remember a couple of days ago, one of our, our young fishermen, he had a rough life, he had a rough start and he has a big family. He bought a boat and he was so happy. He's just on his boat, loving his boat. But if you look at that boat next to the million dollar boats that sleep six, have showers and, and microwaves and toilets and, you know, everybody would look at him and why is he so happy with this little boat? Because he worked hard, he saved money, he's providing for his family. And um, that's what's happening on the water. They, they want us in their season. Um, we don't want to be in that season. We want to exercise our rights. We want to build hard working Mi'kmaq people that are able to go out with some pride and, and, and provide for their families and base it on rights. If we buy into the government structure and their million dollar boats, that's only gonna feed a few families. Once that offer and the bribes of the taxpayers' dollars over, the next generations are not going to, if they want to go out and build an honest living, they won't be able to do that. We need to determine and define our own seasons, our own um, rules, and we have rules. We have 50 traps for members to fish in September, October, um, November, three months, so it's a closed season, 50 traps, hard working, um, and, and that's all we're trying to do. And this is where we are. Today was really hard to watch. I was down on the wharf, I just got home a couple hours ago. It was really, really difficult to watch because we are on the water circled by probably 70 to 100 of these million dollar boats, trawlers, halibut trawlers, lobsters. it's crazy. And we have these little shanties and there's not even RCMP presence. There's a Coast Guard boat way out that's doing nothing, not moving, not doing a thing. A helicopter overhead and one RCMP boat. And, um, but none of them are stopping any of the, the violence on the water, the aggression, the destruction of our traps. Um, it, it, nothing's happening. There's, you, you just wonder because if the Mi'kmaq did anything. They have armies. We've seen Elsa Bokduk. We've seen, you know, Wet'suwet'en. We've seen all these experiences where the full force of the law is there against us. 
and we're peaceful, we're not hurting anyone. Yet there's a mob of, of commercial uh, fishermen and associations are, are very aggressive, breaking all kinds of laws. Um, and no one's there observing. There's nobody protecting. Uh, there's no answer. And I guess our chief spoke to the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans today, or not the Fisheries and Oceans ministers, talking to them tomorrow, but the head of enforcement. And he said, well, it's not safe for us to go out there. And I'm like, don't you guys go after drug lords offshore? And, you know, I'm like, uh, hard to understand what's going on in this country. And I think it's going on, and it will go on until Canadians and Nova Scotians and our allies say, you know, to the fishing industry, because they keep saying conservation. But all the conservation issues we get, the charts are through the roof that the, the populations have steadily risen and their landings have, you know, multiplied tenfold or more in the last 20 years. Um, so that's where we're at. There, there is no, we talk about rule of law. We've asked the prime minister to uphold the rule of law and uh, fisheries and oceans. We've asked the RCMP to uphold the rule of law. We've asked the premier of Nova Scotia because businesses are denying services to Mi'kmaq people in these communities. I'm like, well, that's discrimination under both provincial and Canadian human rights legislation. Um, you know, we need the premier to speak up and say uphold the rule of law and let people know that you deny services based on race. That's discrimination and protected in, in you know, in the charter and, and uh, human rights legislation. So that's the situation, that's where we're at. And um, like I said, my sons now are on the water and, and we're building our enforcement fleet, our fishing fleet, based on our own capacity. So we don't have the big boats. We don't have the radios that we need. We don't have the numbers of, of um, supports we need down there to keep our people safe in, in carrying out what is a constitutional right in this country. So um, I think it's really important for, for Canadians and other nations to kind of join us and call on our governments to uphold the rule of law in this country. And we can't keep rewarding bad behavior from, you know, a, a commercial fishing industry. And I said today on one of my live streams, this isn't conservation. This is preservation of their way of life. And their way of life is, is pretty good. It's pretty sweet. They're making a lot of money. They have the big boats, the big toys, the big trucks, the big homes. And I'd love for anybody that um, is crying, you know, conservation, to take a look at the numbers that, that are out there, the actual science. And they've been doing it without anyone checking the numbers. Media, mainstream media, you know, they just can't do the work. They, they grab a story, they get their clips, and then they run. So it's really important for alternative media, uh, social media, to, to, get the, the, uh, to get it right, I guess. They do more research. They get it right. They get the numbers. And um, so I really appreciate this conversation and, and other conversations like this where people can actually get the real story. I guess. Well, exactly. And, you know, it would literally take mainstream media five minutes to Google Clearwater, to Google any of those massive corporations, because that's what they end up becoming. We're not talking about one tiny little fisherman just barely making enough to feed his family. We're talking about massive corporations that have overfished, have made hundreds of millions of dollars in Mi'kmaq waters and had no problem when Mi'kmaq people weren't allowed to fish. But now that we want to fish like a fraction of a percent according to our own laws, 
then they literally do act like violent mobs. And, you know, I keep circling around back to what you were saying, you know, because it really struck me that they do this because they can. And they do this because they get rewarded every time they do this. They, you know, they all come together. They use their multiple millions of dollars with their lawyers. You know, they can continue to send boats out to cut your traps. They can continue to intimidate people. Um, they have the money to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. All of these things they keep doing and they keep trying to pressure politicians. But I agree with you that this time around, they may be acting in this, in this horrible way, but we're in a different place as Native people all across Turtle Island. You know, 21 years later, we've had Idle No More, we've had Wet'suwet'en Strong, we've had Alton Gas, we've had all of these other things happen. So we're very connected, we're very coordinated, we're very quick to send, you know, money, supplies, support, observers, um, and all of that stuff. And the other thing that I don't think that they're counting on is that the law has changed. I mean, there have been an incredible amount of court cases that have come out that talk about things like Aboriginal title. And you know, as well as I do, that the Mi'kmaq in Mi'kma'ki are in a very unique position across the country. While we have pre-Confederation treaties, we don't have any document that surrenders our land, our sovereignty, or our resources. So not only do we have Aboriginal rights and treaty rights, but we also have Aboriginal title rights. And Aboriginal title is on a very different scale than what Supreme Court talks about Aboriginal and treaty rights in the sense that we have the exclusive use, ownership, and governance over our lands and all the resources within those territories, and that includes water. So we're in a, we're in a very different legal, political, and social reality, and I don't think they see that. And another really important point that you raised, um, you know, because a lot of people ask, why is this happening? How is this allowed to happen? Why isn't the RCMP protecting Native people? I mean, these are clearly crimes. And you keep coming back to its racism. Why was Donald Marshall wrongfully imprisoned? It was racism. And why do we have more people in prison today than we did during Donald Marshall's era? Racism. Why is it that when we peacefully occupy our lands, like in Wet'suwet'en territory or in Alton Gas, people scream rule of law, but when they come out shooting with flares and ramming boats and could possibly kill somebody, I don't see any RCMP or politicians screaming rule of law. And that really goes to the heart of it. I mean, Cheryl, you hit those two nails right on the head in terms of racism and I mean, you were there today. You saw how, like, what are people feeling about all of this? We knew, and we sent a letter to media release prior to our launch. And we asked DFO to protect us, the Coast Guard to protect us, the RCMP to uphold the rule of law, and the Premier to, to talk to Nova Scotians about Nova Scotian human rights, and you cannot deny services based on race, that this is against the law. We did this last week prior to coming out. I don't know why. I thought that, okay, they're at least going to be there. I really, really thought that, you know, there's going to be a conflict, and a young person going for wellness checking get killed with six, seven, eight cops all around her. Or a mother who's protecting her son from a bar fight has six cops thrown in a cop car. We couldn't get any cops. There were no cops. Uh, DFO will send out tons of uh, a fleet of officers to check our food, social ceremonial traps, and make sure we don't sell one or two. Um, but the the last few days, when no one showed up, I thought. The laws changed. We've changed. Our rights are strong. We have a, a historical line of wins at this, the courts in this country. I think hitting like three hundred or something. Yeah. Of you know uninterrupted wins. We're not losing. The law is on our side. But Pam, I don't know why. Maybe I was naive. But the last few days of seeing our young fishermen in our small little boats 
our, our small enforcement fleet have been no support in this country. If your boat broke down and you called the Coast Guard, they'll send a search and rescue. Everybody sees what's happening, but it's not on the news. The news, you're not, you're not seeing 100 boats, large commercial boats attacking these small little shanties and circling around them. You don't see that on the mainstream news. We see that on social media, on live feeds. Um, that's it. I, I'm still, I didn't expect more, but I was hoping for more in this country. And the only thing that's going to change is the rest of us Canadians have to just stop feeding into that, the, the, you know, the tantrums that the commercial fishing industry is having. And um, the politicians that ignore our rights in order to get votes. Well, exactly. I, I, I don't know what else to say. No. There's Mi'kmaq people, um, and there's always been Mi'kmaq people. My, my, my father and our direct descendants come from the signature of the treaty. So it's no accident that my father spent his life for decades fighting for the treaties, his whole life. That, that was his work. His life work was to govern and fight for our treaties and our rights. And then for me to spend the last couple decades doing this work and now I'm, I'm looking at how things are unfolding and to see my sons on the front line in, in critical positions. Um, it's not a mistake. This, this obligation, this, this um, inheritance, a responsibility to make sure our rights are upheld goes generation to generation. We're not going to stop. Um, the Mi'kmaq people will not stop. We know what our rights are. And I remember my dad always saying, they think we're going to forget about our rights, but we're not. And during his lifetime, he built a huge treaty monument um, right in our community next to the band office. People come and go. Those kids will never, ever, ever forget about their rights. But it's not just that. It's, it's the assertion of rights that our community continues to make. And we're the closest as a, a community and a nation when we're standing up. When we're sitting back and, and oppressed, we get depressed. Um, we have suicides. We have, you know, um, all kinds of the social issues that plague our communities. But when we stand up, we build pride and and a sense of responsibility to the next generation. So our Mi'kmaq people are not going away and our fishermen are so brave. You know, I, I watched one of the live streams of a young man and the boats are circling around, taking their traps and very aggressive. And he goes, well, I have my flotation device. He said, I can swim. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, but you can't swim long. You're not going to last in those cold, frigid Atlantic ocean waters but they're willing to they're willing to and they know when they go out there they check their 10 trawls 10 trap trawls that they could very well end up being in the water and rammed by these big boats and you know it's getting there it's going to happen soon it's it's just, unless unless the rcmp and dfo get on the water and international observers Something is going to happen soon, and it's unfortunate, um, but our young people are so brave, and they're not going anywhere, and they have that sense of responsibility to their kids and, and their grandkids and, and to their ancestors. They remember their father and their grandfathers being um, doing the same thing, and we've been doing it since the ink on the treaty has been dried. We have not forgotten. And I guess we won't forget because here we are again. Well, you know, Cheryl, in all of this, you look at all of the bad that's happening. Uh, and on the other side of it, I think, you know, what a terrible loss. We don't have your father anymore. But I see him in you and all of the work that you do and the way you work 
you know, very publicly, but also behind the scenes. We cannot hear from you for a couple of years, but we know you're working away at all of these, you know, the protection of Mi'kmaq sovereignty and jurisdiction. And then to see all the pictures on social media of your children and knowing that, you know, you didn't just do it, but the greatest gift that you can give, that your father gave, was giving it to you and you giving it to your kids. And then all of us seeing this on social media, it re-inspires and gives us hope because it is, it is frightening. It's violence to know that it's lawlessness, that it's, you know, you've got the police essentially saying, well, this must be okay because they're not stopping it. But, you know, on the other side of it, we're still here and we're defending our rights and we're doing it from wherever we are and, and helping each other. And things have changed. We're so much stronger we're, and, and what you've done, I mean, what the band has done in terms of their governance, I mean, that is solid. It's not just you went out one day and said, I declare this season. I mean, with all your, you know, scientists and researchers and, and legal experts and the fact that you've been working on it for years, I mean, you can't argue with that. And it's pretty hard for, you know, those commercial fishermen with 99% of the monopoly on our fisheries to look and point fingers at the ones that only have a little tiny fraction of the fishery and say, you guys are gonna kill the fish and you guys are overfishing and you're risking the lobster when you know, you've got massive corporate fishers out there who you know, were found guilty of leaving their traps on the ocean floor and violations. I mean, they commit all these violations all the time. And if it were me, honestly, Cheryl, any of those fishing boats that were involved in any of this violence, they would have their licenses revoked. And any of those businesses that are denying services to Mi'kmaq peoples that have nothing to do with the fisheries, but Mi'kmaq peoples wanting to buy things or eat something or purchase a service to be denied that service simply because they're Mi'kmaq, those stores would be closed down too because that's not how we live in a society that's based on human rights and respect for everybody else, so. And I, th I think that's where, um this shift in the Canadian population is important. What we need down there now, we need some legal warriors um, to help our fishermen to, to write their experiences, to apply them to law, to hold the, these um, businesses and, and um, enforcement agencies and governments accountable. We need observers. We need international um, interventions. And one of the things I wanted to do that I just haven't had time is to bring together a group of, uh, of international Indigenous um, legal warriors to help me strategize and, and move some of these things to the international level. And maybe that's something that you and I can um, work on, even a, a call sometime soon, because I don't mind doing this webinar. But you know, Pam, anytime I do something, I want something back. Yep. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's always a relationship. It's a two-way uh, street. Absolutely. There was, there was nobody in this country that I, I could pick the phone up and call our legal experts across the country and within our Mi'kmaq Nation, and everyone accepted my call. Um, join me for sort of strategy sessions and, and just really helped us make sure we thought of everything before we went forth. And we have a solid factual case for winning. And I think if we go to the Supreme Court of Canada again, they will slap the fishermen's hands, the minister's hands, and the law will change and we will have one more win in our, in our, um, on our side. It, it, you can't impose a system on people for 21 years and because they won't take your your deals she broke the law every year she's never applied the badger test of minimal impairment and justification she's never had a, a good reason to impose her regulatory powers over us because they other than public interest of a few crying commercial fishermen and like I said they cried wolf for 21 years every time we tried to fish they gather up and and oppress us so she doesn't really have a legitimate um, purpose to regulate us and what we offered her was a, a small three-month fall fishery we're looking at um, collecting our data on what would determine what is a moderate livelihood 
We didn't go out and say, we're going to fish a hundred traps for six months of the year. We went out and said, let's try this and see how it works for our people and see if we can, if our enforcement and our fleet um, are capable of making a moderate livelihood. Do we have the capacity to develop our own enforcement team? And um, so I found we have results. it covered. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> but we, we, we're, we're there. We have a, a strong, um, we have a strong right. Uh, we have a strong factual case. And we have a strong community mm -hmm. um, that will not back down. Well, and, you haven't yet. Well, <laughs> you know, people uh, look to your community because they know you guys don't back down. And it doesn't matter if everyone else goes in another direction. You will always do what's right by your people. And that's what continues to give me hope because we get so down sometimes and say there's no hope or you know, these communities are doing X, Y, and Z, but it only takes one to break free and lead the way, and that'll make a huge change. So Cheryl, I do, uh, after this, in addition to sharing this podcast and um, as widely as I can and highlighting all of your calls to action, all of the calls here that you've made for help and support to Canadians and other people, um, we can connect after and and follow up especially on the international stuff and uh i'll also make sure that it, there's a description box in the podcast and, and things like that i'll post links to like um if there is donation sites for example because a lot of people have already contacted me and said where can i send donations for that community and it's and you know we want to get that support out there and, and you I will help do that for the, for the donation piece, I think there's two distinct needs there. One is the need for our community okay. um, to support our people there. So we have food, water, um, fuel, and shelter. And, and we're trying to build up and make it comfortable for people to be there. Uh, and then there's a the need for the fishermen that are going to be fishing for three months. And every time they go out and they, they lay their traps, we're losing the traps, either all of them or some of them. Um, okay. And today we watched a video with Chief um, Andrea Moore and Chief Deborah Robinson, and the boys went out to see if they could find any of their traps, and they they were coming up empty, empty, and then they found one trawl with ten traps and lobsters in them. And I was watching from home with tears because these were the first moderate livelihood um, Migma trade lobsters to be to be set and collected and it was so historical and we were oh. so happy we didn't have 375 traps we weren't loading the bill up with the boat up with crate after crate after crate we came in with one crate and we were celebrating it as a community and that's going to keep us going so well, I mean, that's, that's the good news. <laughs> yeah, that's the good news. So, you know, for donations, the community that are there, the fishermen and the, you know, replacing of traps and probably at some point legal fees, if this gets challenged. Well, um, I, 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 I think we have enough um, legal minds. Oh, okay. Before, no, we will need legal fees. I mean, it's costly to defend. Yeah. But I remember as a young woman in the room, the chiefs in the 1980s and 90s, they were giving up their salary to pay um, our lawyer. And I remember our lawyer was charging $50 an hour. And they said, we need more lawyers. They were, the chiefs had a conversation and a discussion. They said, we need more lawyers. And they got more lawyers. We have a lot of Mi'kmaq lawyers. We have a lot of Indigenous lawyers in this country. We have a lot of international experts that will do this work because it's important to them. Mm -hmm. So yes, we will need all of that. But I think um, what's changed in this day and age is the capacity of our community members. And when they come together, it's amazing. It amazing. is. And thank you for everything that you've done, Cheryl. Thanks for talking to me today because we know the mainstream media is not 
covering it. We want to hear from people on the ground, not people talking about, talking about, talking about people who might have been there. And you've always been on the ground. You've always been a leader. And we will use this to try to generate support and, and public interest. And for all the podcast listeners or uh, video watchers out there, you can share this information. You can, I will post all the links where you can follow for donations and more information and to support this community because this is urgent. This is actually life and death work. This is livelihood. This is, you know, this is how we reclaim, you know, our rights and our livelihoods, which has been wrongly denied, you know, from jet. You know, Pam, coming home, there was um, army trucks and vehicles being taken towards the army and Digby. And you're looking at it and saying, wow, I wonder if they're going to come and protect us. But then we have Oka. Um, we have um, Elsa Bokduk, Wet'suwet'en. We're not breaking any laws. No. We're so peaceful and we're doing our little fishing. It's, it's, a, it's, it's cute. <laughs> it's sweet. It's modest. Yes. It's humble. It's like us. But you always have that fear. And then you see the RCMP. Now the RCMP are actually on the site at two entries and denying the non-native commercial fishermen from coming into that wharf and bothering us. That's the first time in my life that I've ever seen that happen, but they're not protecting us on the water. On the water. And that is where lives are at risk. Yeah. Well, it's important then that people know that. And so everybody follow Cheryl, <laughs> you know, on Twitter, on Facebook, because she actually does post live posts and all of that stuff. I and haven't been tweeting much. I, I'm just getting old with the phone. And <laughs> I used to be much faster, um, but I will go live and I will share um, live. My, my sons are both on, on the water every day doing the... Um, you know, leading and enforcing and protecting. Doing their nation proud. Yeah. Oh, it really does. It really, really does. Well, thank you, Cheryl. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I will get this done and sent to you as soon as possible. And we'll keep finding ways to help. Perfect. Um, I'm excited for our call. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, uh, see you soon, uh, Cheryl. My list of the A-listers. <laughs> There's a few already lined up. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for having me, Pam. You have a, a good audience and a good network, and I appreciate you guys checking in with us, and uh, we can do this again. Let's see how this develops. Yep, for sure.